these two classes really represent two sides of my professional work, but also my personal uh, passion, I guess you could say. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I teach religion at Pepperdine, and I primarily teach world religions or interfaith studies or religious studies. Um, my background is also on missionary and mission field in East Africa, and part of our mission work in East Africa was the development of a nonprofit organization that's now in its third decade and does uh, sustainable development work in all parts of East Africa. And those two worlds uh, are connected in my story. We'll be, I'll be sharing a little bit of that and talking about that. And so that's just a little bit about uh, what to expect. Um, so uh, what I'm going to do today as we talk about what would Jesus, or how did how would Jesus do interfaith work? Um, and for both of these, and, to, and tomorrow's class is how would Jesus do development? Uh, and for both of these, uh, I really am asking in the spirit of not providing an answer, but uh, opening some conversations and sharing some experiences and some perspectives and seeing where it leads us. I'm always a little bit resistant, even suspicious of some of those. Here's how you, here's the Christian way of doing such and such how you raise kids. This is how Jesus would raise kids, or this is how, you know, or whatever it might be. Um, I think we are called into a life that uh, opens up possibilities for us to do ministry in different contexts. Contexts have to be bought uh, uh, in, the, in the context. So I'm, I'm, that's the spirit of what I'm doing. You'll see how these together. Um, as I said, tomorrow's class will focus uh, a lot on our nonprofit work. Today's class um, actually comes out of a book that I just published called Better Religion. I just came out a couple months ago. Um, so, shameless plug, if you're interested in that, uh, it's available where, wherever you buy your books. It's way, so, uh, Better Religion, it's a, it's a primer or an introduction in a religion. And I'll talk a little bit about that. So, here's, here's how I, I want to start. When I when talking about interfaith or interreligious studies, I, I often like to start with this little anecdote. It's one that's familiar to us. Um, and that is, if you spend 15 minutes, anyone that spends 15 minutes walking through an international airport, like LAX, and some of you have done that in the last few hours, uh, if, if not in the last day, 15 minutes walking through a terminal at a place like LAX, and if you open your eyes and you take note, of the people around you as you're walking just from your terminal out the door or, or vice versa, you see more cultures, you hear more languages, you rub elbows with more worldviews and lifestyles and religions um, than our parents, certainly our grandparents, would have experienced in a lifetime. And that's part of the world that we live in. We live in a world where we experience, at least, human diversity on a scale that uh, few humans have experienced. And for me, it's a really interesting, for people that study these things, it's a really interesting question for me to ask, is the world more diverse today than it was, let's say, a thousand years ago? That's a really interesting debate, and I think you could make a pretty good case for saying it's not. You know, technology, travel, all these things kind of bind us together in ways that are unprecedented. And yet you also don't have this world culture that's coming together, as some people have thought. You, you, even though we're bound together in certain ways, you have diversities starting even to, to move apart in some ways from, from each other. 
But however we talk about that, what is true, or what seems to be true today, and I'm going to talk about this religiously, what seems to be true today is that we experience human diversity on an unprecedented level. That in the past, in human history in the past, different cultures, different communities, different religions would have been largely geographically segregated. And there, there, there are points of overlap, long trade routes and, and things like that. It's not that, that uh, interreligious or intercultural uh, experiences never happened before. They did, and sometimes significantly. But in today's world, we experience the diversities of the world at a level that has never been uh, And that's something for Christians to stand up and take notice of. It has some implications for the world that we live in, the world as I will say, the world that God so loves, the world that we are called to love and serve. And so what does it mean to live in a world as Christians, in uh, a world where we intermingle with one another more than ever before? And that, that's part of what's, what's behind a lot of this. The other thing that I'll say is that religiously, and this, this goes against what a lot of um, assumptions, a lot of our assumptions are, that religiously this world is, or let me say human religion seems to be growing and diversifying across the world. Um, we live in an age, uh, in a lot of our worlds, where we think secularization is happening in a way, and a lot of times people think secularization means that religions are declining, or that religiosity, the interest in religions are declining. And again, this is like that diversity question. We can debate different sides of this. There are some ways in which religion and its influence and its impact is uh, changing certainly and declining but when you look globally and here's what this is part of what I do in this book and if you're interested there's a whole chapter that goes into detail in all of this what you find across the world is that religions all the major religions you name them Islam Christianity Hinduism Sikhism Buddhism uh, all the the major world religions that we can talk about are growing both in raw numbers and relative percentages in other words, the number of adherents in each of those religions is actually increasing, but not only increasing like keeping up with population growth, but actually increasing their piece of the pie, which means overall this world is becoming more religious. And you add to that that it's also becoming much more religiously complex. And so not only do you have the major traditions and the major religions that are growing in raw numbers and relative percentages, you also have all kinds of new things happening. What scholars call new NRMs, or new religious movements, popping up all over the place. Some that you've heard of, many that you haven't. Every year, new religious movements that get significant enough that people start studying them are happening across the world. Or hybrids or mixes of religions. If you've ever heard, in Nigeria there's a in West Africa, there's a, a phenomenon called Chrislam, which is it, it's a it's a literal mixing of Christianity and Islam in an area of the world where there's so much conflict between those two religions that that's one that's one way that some community members are trying to address it. We can have our debates about uh, whether that's good or bad or what we think about that, but those kind of phenomena are growing all over the world. Uh, interesting and unprecedented mixtures and overlaps and hybrids and new religions and old traditional religions, and all of it is growing. And, really interesting statistic here, and then I'll move on from this point, the number of atheists and agnostics, the people that claim to, to uh, resist religion or be anti-religious, um, is actually decreasing globally. 
Now that gets to be a confusing stat in our world because we, we see so, you know, you guys probably know the stats, the, the fastest growing religious demographic in the United States are the nuns, which are the people that when you're given the choice, you know, are you Muslim, Christian, Hindu, Jewish, or none of the above, they choose none of the above. That's the fastest growing demographic in the United States. A lot of my Pepperdine students identify as nuns. I'm familiar with that, and I'll say something about that as well. But globally, what you have is you actually have the number of people that consider themselves non-religious, not interested in religion, is shrinking. Um, it grew in the 20th century. It peaked about 1970. And it's been declining ever since. The number of atheists worldwide, the number of people that are convinced uh, of atheism or some forms of agnosticism. Even the nuns, the people that claim to not be uh, religious, again, as many of you may know, more and more data is coming in and research showing that those people, especially in the younger generations, not that they're leaving religion per se, it's that they are tired and put out, disillusioned with old guard religion, with institutional religions. For better or for worse, we can have our debates about this too. They don't want categories. They don't want to be put in boxes. They don't want to, and so they're, they're checking none of the above is not as much a rejection of religion as it is a rejection of religious categories. Many of them are very interested in issues of spirituality. And that brings up Something else that I won't even go into today, but what's the relationship of spirituality and religion and how you define all these terms? And the only thing I know to tell you about some of that is Amazon. Uh, it's just a click away. You, uh, I, I go into this. Um, but I have to define my terms, and I try to do that. But at least as a baseline, when we talk about our presence in this world as Christians, and who would Jesus have us to be, and how would Jesus have us engage the world, we are living in an, a century when human religiosity is, is at a fervor. It is growing. It is getting more complex. In some cases, it's getting more contentious. And that's the world we live in. And we intermingle uh, with one another in that world. Malibu campus, I teach classes here within walking distance, literally walking distance. Of course, you have to go up and down stairs and hills in our walking distance. But within walking distance, we have a number of churches. We have three different Jewish communities across the, the Jewish continuum. Um, we have a Christian science reading room. We have tarot card readers and fortune tellers. We have crystal gazers. We have, other, we have a historic Hindu temple. That one's driving distance, but only a five-minute drive. Up the, up the, uh, if you come down Las Virginis on your way here, you see a big, looks like a wedding cake kind of building. That's a historic, at the time, for a long time, was the largest Hindu temple in the western part of the United States. Um, large Hindu community. Within an hour or a two-hour drive of where, where we are right now, almost 400 Buddhist temples. Large, 400 Buddhist temples or Buddhist centers all across the Buddhist uh, uh, continuum. Sikh uh, gudwaras all over the city. Uh, a Jain temple, if you know anything about Jainism, tiny little religion in India that has very few temples anywhere in the world. The largest Jain temple anywhere in the world outside of India is in Los Angeles. Um, you have uh, all kinds of stuff going on here. And part of my question is, which makes it great when you teach world religions at Pepperdine University, you have a lot of field trips set up for you. 
uh, if you can get through LA traffic, that's another issue. But what it does do is it brings up a question, is a city like Los Angeles an anomaly? Is it unusual? Or is it a sign of things to come? And part of what I'm arguing is, without question, it is a sign of, our, of, how, of the direction our world is going. An irreversible reality of increasing, sometimes contentious, religious communities and realities that are intermingling and interfacing with one another. Um, certainly the students that sit in my classes at Pepperdine, a few of them that are in the room right now, um, that is the world they are going into. That's the world that they are preparing for. That's the world they have to figure out how to interact and live in. It's the world that they will work in. And so it becomes a very important uh, way to understand our world. And so what I try to do, um, in my book anyway, is just provide a snapshot of that world. What's going on? How do we understand it? And, and part of what, and this is, this, as I transition here, part of, kind of away from the book, I'll talk a little bit about it, but part of what the book is, is just a sociological or philosophical study of those. I'm, it's not, I'm not providing the Christian take on it. This is not a book of theology written for a Christian audience. This is me. I, I, I identify myself very clearly in the book to a point that even the, the publishers wanted me to, you know, are you sure you want to say it that, that starkly? And, you know, yes, because I think it's important in what we're saying, but it's not a book for Christians only. It's a book for a wider community. I see myself as a Christian participant in interreligious studies and interreligious activism. And I hope that a book like this, that my Hindu friends and my Muslim friends and my Sikh friends and my atheist friends find something in here that is as helpful for them as my Christian readers. And so that, that says something about the book, but what I want to do today for Harbor is, is lean back into the faith position and say, so as Jesus followers, um, what does all this mean for us? And that's what I'm... I'm I'm really interested in, and why is it important for us as Jesus followers to pay attention and to participate? To me, this can't just be an academic exercise. It needs to be a Christian nation in the world that we live in the world, as I said a few minutes ago, that God so So two reasons why I think this is really important for us to pay attention to and to tackle or at least try to address the question the first is, I think God cares about this a whole lot. The world that we're describing is the world that God has put us in, the world that God so loves. And as Jesus followers, as we all know, we are called to be peacemakers, not just to understand that world, not, but to prepare for peaceful interactions in that world, to be peacemakers and peace builders. Um, we are called, language of Romans 12, to live at peace with everyone, as far as it's possible, as far as it depends on us. That from our side, anyway, we can't always control what everyone else and every other community does, but from our side, we will be the ones who extend peace. As Jesus sent out the 72 and say, go into the communities, into the villages, into the homes, and say, peace to you, peace on this house. Whether it's accepted or not, let God worry about that. But our call is into those spaces, be peacemakers. So that, and it's, it's important for me to, to say it this way. I think interreligious peace building, I'm going to illustrate this in, in a few minutes, interreligious peace building for Christians is not 
just a carrot for evangelism. It's not just something that we do hoping that we can draw people in and then pounce on them. That's not what interreligious peace building is. And I say this, and for those of you that don't know, I say this as a missionary. I've spent many years doing discipling work, church planting. Uh, I've been involved in that my entire adult life. I can talk more about that if you wish. So I, I believe I'm all for the, the evangelistic side of our mission presence in the world. But interreligious peace building is, I want to say, a kingdom value all on its own. It is a kingdom value, not just a carrot with an with a end goal in mind that's different. Building peace, living at peace with others, respecting, understanding, trying to understand them and engage them as, hum, as fellow human beings and global neighbors is gospel work. It's not just an invitation to the gospel, it is gospel. And that's an important part of what I think this, this, uh, this what we're called to here, and I'll say a little bit more about that. So the first reason that I think this is important for us is because God cares about it and we're called to it. Second reason I think that we can talk about, uh, and this starts to move us into some of the um, uh, ways that this might be relevant for church communities, is that I think it's formational for us. It is formational for us. One of the uh, one of the Michael Jordans in my field, a, a religious studies scholar that, um, or, or, or I should I should say Steph Curry's of, of our that's a more updated uh, thing, although he lost last night. The LeBron James of of my world, the uh, religious studies um, scholar of the 19th century na- named Max Muller, talked about the importance of interreligious studies in the following way. He said in a very pithy little uh, statement, he said, to know one religion or faith is to know none. And I think that's a pretty powerful way of saying, if we only know what is familiar to us, what is comfortable to us, if we only know what we have inherited, if we only know the contours of our worldview, our way of, of understanding the world and understanding the human experience, if that's all we know, then we don't even know that very well. That we only know who we are, and, and to say this as a Jesus follower in this context, I would say we only know who Jesus is when we can put ourselves in the context of people that are different than us. That have, sometimes that's Christians that have very different convictions. Sometimes it's people from other parts of the religious uh, uh, continuum that are very different than us. Comparisons are clarifying. We know who we are partly by knowing what we are not. We know what we are committed to partly by knowing what we are not committing to. Um, And so it's clarifying in that way. But it can also be challenging and expanding. We know who Jesus is not only by the pictures of Jesus that we have inherited or that we promote in our communities, but by sometimes interacting with how God's Spirit is at work in people where we find Jesus and we find gospel in incredibly surprising places, and then it changes our understanding of Jesus and therefore ourselves. And so this is formational. We're called to this because it's formational. And I have had uh, uh, people in contexts like this sometimes say, that's, that's great, and that's a, that's a good idea. And for those of you professors, you, know, you do your research and you talk in an academic setting, that's all, all nice. But in a local church, what does this even mean? You know, to, that we need to open ourselves up and, and engage in interfaith stuff. 
I want to move in that direction for the next couple of minutes, but at least let me say this as part of this formational piece. My students, the future at Pepperdine, the future of our churches, the people hopefully that will be filling the pews and the, and the chairs in our churches in the coming years and decades, they want to know what to do with this, and they want to be a part of communities that are knowing what to do with this. They want to be a part of communities that know how to engage these differences with deep conviction, but with radical hospitality, and trying to figure out the balances of that, of those kinds of things. That's what they want. And so that's something that we have to take very seriously. Another piece of that, and this comes from some empirical research uh, in a group called Interfaith America. If you're familiar with Interfaith America, Ibu Patel, if you're familiar with that name, one of the largest, it's actually the largest interfaith uh, nonprofit organization in the world, um, based in Chicago. But this is some empirical research that comes out of, of Interfaith America. Interfaith America has spent the last 30 years doing a number of things, but partly trying to get youth and communities of faith in the United States to collaborate with one another, to get youth groups and churches to interact with youth groups and mosques, to get Jews and Buddhists and even humanist and atheist centers and their youth programs um, uh, to interact with one another to get to know one another, maybe to work on community projects together. And a lot of the resistance that they have gotten, and this won't surprise you through the years, from all religious communities has been something of this version. Even if we believe you, Interfaith America, that our youth, that this would be a good activity for our youth, we can't even keep our youth in our own buildings. We can't keep them coming to church or coming to Shabbat services or coming to the mosque on Fridays or we can't even keep them in our community and now you're wanting them to, we, you're wanting us to send them out to hang out with Buddhists and Muslims and atheists let us figure out how to keep our kids home first and then we'll start doing that and what the research shows is that is exactly backwards thinking because when Churches, I'll just use churches as an example, when churches get their uh, young people engaged in these kinds of things, it sparks something in those young people. They suddenly are, are seeing, wait a minute, I go to school with these kids, I play basketball with, uh, with, with Ali, or I, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I'm in a club at school with this, with this kid or that kid, or, and, and I've been wondering about them, and we go to church and we just kind of talk about this thing and I, then I go back out in the world and I have all these experiences and these friends and these exposures and what do I do with that? And they have a hard time making those connections and when churches welcome and open up those spaces for their kids to engage questions, is there a risk in that? Absolutely, but it's gospel risk. It's risk that says we are not afraid, we are not based on fear or protection or building walls, we are based on going out and being open and exploring the world that God has in front of us. And when you do that, kids often respond very positively, even to the point of then going home and saying, you know, Mom, my, my friend Farzir, they, they pray on Fridays. We pray on Sundays. I've never thought about that. Now, why do we do that? And, and what is it about, why do we believe this? And, and we say this about Jesus. They say something different. Or, and it opens up those spaces with good mentoring. This is where I hope these kind of studies become helpful. Where parents and youth 
directors and ministers and church communities can welcome questions that are hard, but welcome them without fear and with love for our, for our global neighbors. And there's something about opening, up, opening us up to that risk, that whole world, that is actually formational and deepening and, and brings about growth in our kids, in ourselves, as parents, when we have to start figuring out, now what am I going to say when they ask about this? And in our church, I think that's really important. So anyway, um, how would Jesus do or would Jesus uh, interfaith stuff? I hope that at least a little bit here, what I've convinced you of is that we live in a world where this is a really important question. We serve a God that cares about that world and that calls us into it in some new and imaginative ways. And when we do that, not only can we give public witness to the resurrected Christ, but we open ourselves up to the Spirit's formation uh, in our own lives and our communities in some surprising So how is it done? Interreligious peace building. How is it done? What does it look like? And in the remaining 20 minutes, I'm going to solve all the problems about that. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about this. I welcome conversations afterwards, and I'll pick up and actually tell some stories and, and more kind of uh, implications or applications of it tomorrow. Ways, although I'll, I'll share. Um, so here's here's what I think. Uh, when I say how would Jesus do interfaith work, I hope I've established that Jesus would have us do interfaith work. And here's where a metaphor that I use coming back to the book, is, and the metaphor is one of a bridge. It's a pretty simple metaphor, but when we talk about peacemaking, when we talk about bridge building, um, the, the metaphor of a bridge is very important in the following way. When we ask just simply, what is a bridge? Like literally, what is a bridge? Well, a bridge is something that connects chasm or, or crosses over a chasm that is otherwise uncrossable, impassable. And that's what a bridge is, right? And so you have foundations built on opposite shores, and from those separate foundations, girders and uh, beams and uh, extensions are able to go across and meet in the middle and make a chasm that's otherwise impassable, passable. That's a pretty simple metaphor, but it, it, it packs a lot of meaning in it, in that for inter, and that's, that's how I try to imagine interreligious peace building, is that as Christian interreligious peace builders, we, it's not our job necessarily, and I think this is one of the big mistakes in the world that I'm a part of in interfaith work and interfaith activism. There's, always, there's often this assumption that you do interfaith work by finding the commonalities with the other communities that you want to build to, and leave your disagreements and your differences behind. Because if you come into a relationship with Buddhists or atheists or, or Muslims or whatever it is, and you start talking about your convictions about Jesus, or you, you bring your worldview with you, well, suddenly you're going to get into points of conflict and disagreement, and then, then there, that's not going to go well, and then it's all going to break down. And so interfaith uh, uh, workers have often said to leave the differences aside, Build on what you have in common, even, even if it's just a little bit. Find your common ground, and then start building from there. And the bridge metaphor offers a different way of, of understanding. 
what the bridge metaphor assumes is that we are not going to find, we are not always going to find religious common ground with communities that we want to build peace to. Communities that I think Jesus calls us to build peace. We are not always going to find religious common ground. We are going to run up against pretty significant differences. I mean, what religion is by definition is something that calls us into considerations of those things that, that humans consider ultimately important. So is there a God? Is there one God? Is there, are there many gods? Is there no God? Is there just an energy field in the universe? Is there a Holy Spirit, a personal Holy Spirit at work? Is, the, is it just the law of karma that's working on us? Are we going to, is there some kind of afterlife or a death? Do we just dissipate and disappear? Or are we caught in cycles of reincarnation? I mean, you can keep going down the line. Those things are not going to be resolved in time for us to live at peace with one another. But the bridge metaphor, what it does is it helps us to imagine that interreligious peace building doesn't require us to find common ground. We can create common ground from our opposite shores. And so from the Christian shore, we build on a foundation of things that we believe to be ultimately true. And actually, we believe that other foundations, and there's, this is where you get into the subtleties of it, are not true in some significant ways. And I don't think we need to back down from that for interfaith work. My Muslim friends certainly don't want to back down from the things that they believe are true and that they think I have wrong. My Buddhist friends don't want to back down from the things that they think are right about the world and things that they think I'm off base. Okay, well, God, our faith tells us God is going to work those things out. It's not our, it's not our job to work all that out and make sure that we slam it down on everyone. Our job is to build on the foundation and there is only one foundation, right? To build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, and from there to be advocates and promoters of peace in the world. And that foundation is strong for us, and it allows us to build across otherwise impassable chasms. That's what the bridge metaphor does. Now the question obviously becomes, in fact, I can, I can remember at a Pepperdine Bible lecture, um, it tells you it was a couple years ago, before it was Harbor. Um, have, doing a talk like this and a, a gentleman coming forward and saying, well, that, that, sound, that sounds really nice um, and to, to do that, but what if you're building peace in that direction and they don't reciprocate? That's going to give you some problems. And all I know to do from that as a Jesus follower is to say, yeah, that, that would, but I'm not responsible for that. My responsibility is to build and extend peace. And if it, this is the language of the sending out of the 72 as well, if it is returned to me, then we have, we have gained something remarkable. If it is not returned to me, then I move on. That's, that's, that's above my pay grade. I've done what God has called me to do, and we move on. But here's the thing that I can bring to this in terms of 30 years of interfaith work myself. It is often amazing how often returned. Kinds of peace that are returned. Extensions of peace from people that are building on opposite shores with different foundations, but they have their resources too to extend back. And when that happens, there is something in that peace connection that I believe is gospel. And how all that works its 
itself out in God's timing is God's job. Our job is to live at peace with everyone as far as it depends on us to be makers in the world and allow that to be gospel that we are. And I want to just illustrate that a little bit as we as we get as we as we come to a close here with a couple of illustrations. Um, one is kind of a bigger historical uh, illustration, um, and then one is a congregational. Here's the big historical illustration, um, and it has to do with the abolition of the African slave trade. I said big one, big historical. By the year 1800, many of you know, the African slave trade was the largest forced migration in human history. Think now, 10 to 12 million people ripped out of their homes and enslaved. And by 1800, it had become that, the largest forced migration in history. And by the way, the largest forced migration in history perpetrated and often conducted by people that identified themselves as Christians even using Christian sources to that, That's an example of when religions don't do what they should do and go wrong, and we, we have that on our list as well. But by 1800, there were a lot of things that happened. By 1807, the African slave trade was banned in the British Parliament. And when you ask how, that's a huge, long story. A lot of things have been happening uh, through grassroots movements, a lot of, of things, but... For that to be passed legislation in 1807 to end the slave trade was a remarkable moment. And there are at least two people that were prominent um, influencers on that legislative change. One that Christians talk about a lot, and that's William Wilberforce. Okay? He was a member of the British Parliament, uh, evangelical Christian, um, became convinced and was convinced that enslaving other human beings is wrong because we're all created in the image of God and Jesus is command to love, love people, make slavery a sin, and uh, totally against everything that God wants. But one of the people that he uh, uh, collaborated with was a man named Jeremy Bentham. Some of you may know that name, and some of you don't, but very famous uh, British atheist. In fact, a staunch atheist. A, a, a One of the strongest critics at the time of religion in general. He thought religion was outdated superstitions. It was holding back human progress. Jeremy Bentham was a philosopher, very influential guy in the British scene at the time, and the father of the ethical school of utilitarianism. If you've ever uh, heard of utilitarianism, very strong defender of this idea of utilitarianism, which says we should always act in such a way to bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people. And he pursued that from an atheistic point of view, not because there's a God up there. God is holding us back. If we can just buy into this secular principle, we'll be able to progress as a human race. And for his utilitarian principle, greatest happiness for the greatest number, slavery failed that calculus. And so he was opposed, publicly opposed. Jeremy Bentham and William Wilberforce joined forces and collaborated with great respect for one another for decades in the early 19th century on all the big social uh, causes of their day. The African slave trade, prison reform, animal welfare. You have, a, you have the beginning of a lot of things that started, uh, legislatively anyway, with, the, with, with those two working together. Jeremy Bentham grew incredible respect for William Wilberforce 
and even dedicated one of his uh, essays, very famous essay, Essay on the Poor Laws, to William Wilberforce, one of the early, uh, early versions. But here's the point for me. You have two people representing two communities who are building on different shores that are incompatible with one another religiously. They are not agreeing on worldview. They're not agreeing on ultimate matters. They're not agreeing on ultimate values. They don't have common ground in those ways, and yet they found, based on their separate resources, a way to build friendship, collaboration, respect, and they brought about huge change. And that's a story, I think, as Christians tell the story of William Wilberforce, I think we need to tell the story of William Wilberforce's collaboration with Jeremy Bentham. That, as much as anything, calls us into the kind of collaboration we need to be uh, um, imagining for our world today. Let me give one more example. And this one is more uh, uh, local, American, church-oriented. Um, because I know I, it is true that one of the dangers of books like this and, and, and uh, presentations like mine is it can, can be up here in this big academic stuff and leaves people wondering, okay, but what does this mean in our community next Sunday? Or, or whatever it might be. And here's, here's, here's a story that some of you may know that I just want to share um, with you as we close. And uh, um, it's a story of a church in Cordova, um, Tennessee, just outside of Memphis. Um, and it illustrates what I, I started this whole thing off by saying, we live in a world, you go to LAX, and you rub elbows with more religions and more cultures and more than, than humans would have at any other point in human history. And our churches, that's going to be increasingly true. It's true for our kids that we send to schools. It's true for our churches and their communities. And here's a specific example. In 2010, the Hillsong Community Church um, uh, had a, a new nice church and a growing community outside of Memphis. And in 2010, a property just adjacent to their church, very large property, was purchased by the Memphis Muslim community. And they started plans, started looking for getting their uh, permissions and so forth to build an Islamic center. It's going to be a very large Islamic center. This was at a time, by the way, where some of the 9-11 stuff had rekindled, and there was a lot of uh, anti-Muslim uh, rhetoric in the United States. Is at the time of the, what's called the, the Ground Zero Mosque and the controversies about that, if you remember that. There was a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. And the pastor, Steve Stone of Hillsong Community Church, read in the paper about what was happening with the, this empty lot next to him. And he said, in fact, I, I, I wanted to, I, I wrote this down so I could get it right. He said, um, uh, if I can find it, said, when I read that in the paper, my stomach tightened. I felt ignorance and fear. I was concerned about my community and our children. And so I prayed, Lord, what are we supposed to do with this? And it says that Stone didn't know much about Islam. He, didn't, he only knew what the media told him, and he said it was almost completely negative, enough to cause fear. And yet he said, one thing I do know, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And so what did he do? Banner. He put it on the corner of their church lot, facing this, uh, facing the main road, and it said this, Hillsong Community Church, welcome Memphis Islamic Center. 
Welcome to the neighborhood. And you can imagine, I mean, uh, we're down the last couple of minutes here. I don't have to tell you. You can imagine what happened. People left the church. Some people were upset. Others were kind of stayed on the edges and said, are you sure about this? And Pastor Stone said, no, but here we go. But what happened was, is a lot of people started to live into this mission. They started to build a relationship with this Muslim community. They started to create community potlucks with halal meat. They started to do joint ventures to help with homelessness and uh, after-school programs for kids in their communities. It's still going on more than a decade later. It's, it's spun out into several different foundations. And when the Muslim community, their, their permits started to be delayed, Um, they opened up their space for the Muslims to come in on Fridays to pray. And I think this is a remarkable picture. You can't see it very well, but you have a line of Muslim women praying with a cross hanging on the, on the, on the, in the back wall there. Um, and so my question for all of this, and really this whole class and everything comes down to a question. Question for us, and I'll end with this. My question is, we imagine versions of this in our community. What are we facing? It may not be an uh, Islamic community trying to build a mosque next, next door, but it's going to be something. It's going to be something. And if we just stay inside and think, well, we've got to figure out how to keep our kids inside first, or we need to just make sure that we advertise ourselves to the world in loud terms, um, and we're going to just, I, you know, we don't know what to do about those Hindus and Muslims and atheists and others. Or can we open up our imagination in ways that calls us into the world that God so loves in a way that re-sparks imaginations? And I think the promise of Jesus is when we do, remarkable things will happen. That's all I got. Thank you for your time. And um, thank you. And I'll build some of this tomorrow for those of you who want to come back in some directions of development.